Today, as we continue in 1 Peter chapter 1, just be in one verse today, 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. Lord, we thank you that it instructs and teaches, admonishes our hearts and our souls. Lord, we thank you that the Spirit has promised to use it. Lord, it will not return void. We pray that it doesn't do a hardening work in our hearts. We don't resist it, that we don't ignore it, Lord, but that our hearts are open to receive it and, and allow the Spirit to use it to penetrate, to encourage, to chip away, Lord, at idols that, that, that have crept into our hearts, Lord. Might you be with Pastor Adam as he proclaims the word this morning, Lord. Might his own heart and mind be full, and as it overflows, might he do so boldly and clearly for us this morning. Lord, might your kindness extend both to our folks gathered here, those who are gathered online, that the word would go forth powerfully this morning. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Looking forward to getting back into First Peter with all of you. It's a few weeks off, and Pastor Dan handling it for us for the last several weeks, and thankful for that. Looking forward this morning, as we said, as we approach the um, letter here, as we continue, it's important um, to notice for your own sense of sanctification uh, how it is that the Bible uh, gives you ethical implications to your faith. It's important that you get the ordering of, of items right, particularly considering discipleship and growth with new believers. Or as we may, as on our pilgrim's journey, get confused over time and put the cart before the horse, different so on and so forth. And the idea that Peter addresses the ethical implications that belong to our faith, but he does so in the proper and rightful order. That is, you notice... He moves from the indicative to the imperative. What I mean by that is look at verse 3 just briefly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Now again, we're going to get to verse 13 this morning. But notice that verse 13 follows verses 1 through 12. And it's, it's important that we get the ordering of our Christian walk right. Again, according to his great mercy... This is why we're blessing his name. This is why we gather. This is why we're excited. According to his great mercy, he has done this for us. He has caused us. He has, of his own great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And he birthed us unto hope. It's an active, it's a lively hope. And he birthed us unto this lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, before he says, therefore prepare, he reminds you that you have been born again to a living hope. This, this, this is how you conceive of your life in sanctification. You are reminded regularly, this is true of me. This is why I desire to move forward. This is why I desire to prepare my mind. Again, we're looking at the new year and resolutions. Many times folks preparing different types of physical or 
relational or spiritual resolutions of how I go forward. Again, I desire to grow in my life. I desire to desire to read the Bible more often. How, how, how do I get there? How do I find that motivating factor to desire more of Christ? It is that I recall what he has done for me. This is the indicative. It's a state of who you are. You're a Christian. The life of ethics flows from the indicative. Again, further he says, although, look at, the, look at down as you drop down um, to verse 8. Though you have not seen him, this, this is who you are. This is what's wonderful about gathering on Lord's Day. Though, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Again, in all of this, the sense of, I I haven't seen him, but I love him. I don't see him today in this table, but I love him. And, and, And the fact of that, that I'm here on Lord's Day and that this is true of me, is due to the Spirit's use of the gospel in my life. Pastor Dan covered this last few weeks about the Spirit and its instrumental use of the gospel. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves. Who were who, who the prophets of old? Who, who were they serving and the things that they wrote and the words that they provided? Who were they serving? Well, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but who? But you. And the things that have been now announced to you. What is that announcement? What are the things that have been announced to me? That that, that has caused me to be born again to a living hope. That has caused me to love Christ though I have yet to see him with my eyes. What is this announcement? It's the good news. Again, in the things that have been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. But by what power did that good news come to me? Many indeed have heard the good news, but have not experienced the new birth. What is the difference? How have I been born again to a living hope? How has he caused this that I would love him though I have not seen him? He did so through preaching, but more than just preaching, preaching by the power of the Spirit. Through those who preached the good news announcement to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels even long to look. You see, at some point in time, you've heard someone in your own life some point, preaching the good news to you. And it was through those means, the the means of the ordinary, the means of preaching, exposing the gospel, who you were and who Christ is. You're a great sinner and he's a great savior. At some point in your life, you heard someone preaching this message to you. And through those means, the spirit birthed faith in your life. And at that moment, 
by the Spirit's instrumental use. It's, it's, it's the, the, you can think of it as, as, as the Holy Spirit having a tool to work with. You're approaching a job. Here is a sinner, a great sinner, and here's a great Savior. And the means going out is to tell the sinner of the great Savior. And the Spirit takes this announcement and uses it instrumentally to birth you unto the reality of that. I heard I'm a great sinner, and I actually believe that announcement. I believe I, I am. And I believe what I need to do with that is flee to the Savior in this announcement. That's the grace of God through the Holy Spirit in your life who gave you faith and afforded you the grace of repentance in that moment. Indeed, as Peter says, it was according to mercy and he caused you to be born again. He gave you in that moment a heart of repentance. What does repentance mean? But as we speak of recognizing our own sin, whereby we turn away from that sin. And then what happens in our life of grace is we endeavor after a life of new obedience. We endeavor after a life of new obedience, having been reborn by grace. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism, we speak of it often, but the Heidelberg Catechism is so rich, I would encourage all of you, we're working through it in Calvin Club right now. But the way that it's even structured is the way that the gospel comes. It's the guilt. We hear it preached, the guilt. And then we hear of the message of grace. But what flows, at, what, what, what comes to the guilty filled with grace and being reborn in mercy? What flows after? Well, the structure of the catechism, gratitude. You see, this is the proper ordering of our life of faith. You must be born unto a living hope before your actions will be consistent with a person who lives according to hope. Understanding the proper ordering of our life in the faith could not be more important. When Peter's writing to these folks who are, as we've covered, Undoubtedly in a very difficult circumstance, difficult life situation. As he moves, here we are in the 13th verse of his epistle, his letter to them. We find him now speaking of the ethics long after he spoke of the indicatives, who they are. That their life would be formed by gratitude for the mercy of God. It's the same with us. It's important that we think of this, that truly grasping who we are in Christ. And again, this is a lifelong pursuit of the pilgrim's journey. Thinking of who we are in him. Being reminded of who we are in him. Meditating on who we are in him. Singing songs with the redeemed about who we together are in need of. Who we are in him. This is so significant to our life as Christians. Because if we cannot conceive of grace... And we default to performance. We will quickly be disillusioned with our faith. Only by grace, not performance, will we avoid disillusionment. Consider your life right now. Are you experience, experiencing burnout in the faith? 
frustrated in the faith, doubtful, irritable, fatigued in your pursuit of righteous living? Are your ethics lagging? What is the remedy to be reminded of the good news that promotes gratitude? This is why Peter structured the letter the way that he did. It's why we'll notice it throughout the rest of his epistle. Before he calls for lives of active obedience, he reminds them of the grace of God in their lives. That they indeed, that you this morning, those gathering in his name, we have been birthed unto an inheritance, Peter says. And Dan's done a great job of reminding us of the life of hardship as we look to the life that is imperishable, that which is undefiled, that which is unfading, and reminding us that it's kept in heaven for us. Because he's right. It can feel a long way off. Notice something else that's really wonderful about the believers here. I covered it just briefly so far, but look at verse 8. One other piece to notice about these folks as we move forward into verse 13 in just a moment. Something that is yet also very significant for us to consider as believers here and now. Notice verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, or do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Yet notice their situation, verse 6. You have been grieved by various trials. You've been tested in the genuineness of your faith. And then he goes on, though it is tested by fire. Think about the life of faith of these folks as described here. Those who are rejoicing and yet going through very difficult sets of circumstances. What should we learn from these believers that we can apply to our own situation immediately? We have to consider they did not come to Christ because of how immediately helpful they found him to be in their lives. Again, we're often pushed in the faith to consider it in utilitarian purposes. How is this helpful for me? How is this useful for me? How can I take what you're saying to me right now and use it tomorrow in the office place? I, well, how can I make, make good use upon it for its, for its functionality in my life? But if you look at the folks here in this text, that's not the only singular question they ask. Is how immediately helpful can the gospel be to my life sets of circumstances? Rather, they heard an announcement in the preaching of the good news they could be forgiven. In a difficult spot in life, they heard that through the incarnation, life, crucifixion, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they could be forgiven. They could be justified. They could be sanctified. Indeed, they could hold out hope to be glorified. Simply put, Peter says in verse 9, they believed in the outcome of their faith. They believed this led to the salvation of their souls. Again, I think this is significant for us to consider as we think, why go to church? How should sermons be constructed? How should I consider of my Bible reading? What should I think in the matter of sitting down with the text of Scripture and reading it? Is the only question 
of what does this do for me right now in a utilitarian purpose? What is useful about reading this? What is useful about gathering? What is functionally helpful about a sermon about God? That perhaps, yes, and I admit, things need to be helpful. And, and, And certainly things need to be useful. But if that is merely how we conceive of learning about God, we are pursuing the wrong end. As to them, in great trial, trusting in Christ, though through difficulty, so also with us, just knowing God as he is, is lovely and rewarding. That has to be, for the pilgrim, enough. Like, if we learn some, some, some difficult doctrine of God, we, we will look at all of his attributes. Would it only be meaningful if we found a way to apply it? Or would it be lovely and rewarding just to know it? But also, as we pursue the letter this morning, given their identity, again, these are, this is who you are. You, you're Christian people. You haven't seen him, but you love him. And given this identity, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter now exhorts all of us believers who identify with those in the text, Christians this morning, he exhorts all of us unto the life that accompanies our new identity. There needs to be, indeed, a life distinct that accompanies our identity. Verse 13. And you know this um, by, by uh, Bible study principles, right? You're looking at it and you're saying, what is the therefore? And you remember the question is always, what is the therefore, therefore, right? Right, right, right. Ethics must flow from identity. It, 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 it's, this is who I am. Yes, this is who I am. Therefore, since you're this person, th- this is how it works. So Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Very first imperative, and we'll look at a couple more next week. We're just going to consider verse 13 this morning, and then we'll move into the concepts of holiness in verse 14 and 15. But this morning, just considering the very first imperative, or what we say is command that Peter gives to order our lives by, is the very first thing is to set our hope fully on grace. That's an imperative. It's it's, it's not an idea or a suggestion. It's a statement of force. Therefore, since you've been saved by grace, set your hope on grace that will also appear with Christ when he appears for our sake. Set your hope there because of who you are. Now, I want to consider for just a moment The word uh, hope, because it can be a little bit misleading when the translation is saying hope and then we read it in our English sense. That is, when we think of the term hope, like maybe we say, set your hope fully on the grace. Or or, or maybe when we we sang the song last, oh, may I then in him be found. It it can be to us perhaps a little bit um, uh, lacking surety. 
uh, when we consider the English concept of hope or how we use the term hope and we read the term hope here in the text, we can think of it simply as a wishful thought. You know, set your, your hopes and desires and it might possibly work out for the grace of Christ when he is revealed. We, we can think that, that just lacks force because we think of hope in the terms of a wishful thought that we may have toward an unknown future. For the Thomas family, I thought of this immediately. For the Thomas family, we say things like this, I think, every hour. I hope we find a house to buy tomorrow. That's something we're focusing on, right? We're, we're, we're hope, in the sense, describes my, Adam's, lack of certainty regarding tomorrow's events. It's simply a wishful thought. Is that the same way I say, well, I hope this works out. And then I say, yeah, just like I hope grace is revealed and brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a wishful thought regarding the future. We would be misled. Again, this is not the New Testament's use of the term hope. In fact, the verb being translated, set your hope, means exactly the opposite of wish. You can do a study on the term hope and then work it through the New Testament and if you do, you'll see some summary as you put together the, the study of the, con, uh, of the concept of hope in the New Testament. You'll recognize that hope brings with it a look to the future with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. How, how, would, you, how would you define the word hope in the New Testament? Rather, you would see that it means to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. But how can the New Testament's use of hope be so different? How, how can we know that it's not just, well, well, theologically that might sound right, to like, let, let, let's, let's, let's take a term in the New Testament we have difficulty with, like a concept like hope, since it's a wishful thought, and let's import a lot more to it, just so that we can work through certain texts that seem a little bit less sure-footed. How, how do we know that, that we're not simply uh, doing that? How do we know that hope is built on surety and confidence? The answer to that, how can we know for sure that the New Testament's import of hope is more sure-footed than wish or desire? And that is because the New Testament is based, the word hope in the New Testament is based upon actual events of the past, which guarantee future fulfillment. It's because the hope of the New Testament is based upon actual events of the past, which guarantee future fulfillment. I'll just show you just how Peter's already indicated as much. Look in verse 3 once again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Unto what? A living hope. Verse 13, remember, we're working on hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He birthed us unto a living hope. But, how, but, but what is the past act that guarantees that I'm not wishing and desiring? I'm hoping in confidence. What is it? He says in verse 3, 
through. He, he, he did this. He birthed me into a living hope, and he did it concretely, confidently, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, one author notes well, it says, quote, the, the Greek verb elpizo, which is nothing fancy, it's simply the word hope. But the Greek word, uh, uh, verb elpizo, was used in the New Testament, involves the idea of assurance. What is hoped for will certainly come to pass. This is because the future hope in the New Testament is based on something that has already happened in the past. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, because of Christ and his grace to you in the gospel, which is what Peter's describing, this is who you are. You belong to him by covenant, according to his mercy. But when I'm in various trials and various circumstances, how can I have a living and abiding hope, something better than a wish or a desire, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because of Christ and his grace to us in the gospel, we are assured then of his grace, not his judgment at his appearing. The very first imperative of the text for ethical lives, lives of obedience as Christians, Peter says, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Do what shall I do as a Christian? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, not only have we instructed on what to do, that is, what shall we do as believers? We shall set our hope on grace daily. But now Peter instructs us on how to do it. This is kind of the how-to aspect of the text. What is the manual for being enabled to set my hope fully on the grace each and every day? How do I set my hope on the grace of Christ? How do I go about it? Is it a mindset? Is it a thought? Is it an action? Is it a discipline? How do I go about setting my hope on the grace that we brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ? How do I go about it? Again, he gives us the means at the very beginning of the text. Notice verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Further, beyond preparing your mind for action. So this is how you're going to set your hope fully on grace every day. How am I going to do it? I'm going to prepare my mind for action. That's what I'm going to do that is the means whereby I can set my hope on Christ. I'm going to prepare my mind for action, and further, I'm going to be sober-minded. As that individual, I'm setting my hope fully on grace. You see, again, the question, perhaps, as Peter provides the means whereby we set our hope fully on grace, is how can I actively set my hope upon it? How do I do so? Peter answers, by preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded. This is how you do it. If I could define meditating on these concepts and thinking them through throughout the course of our time, what does it look like to prepare our minds for action and being sober-minded? 
I could provide you one small little thought to, to, to meditate upon and to lay to your conscience on how do I, individual, who, who has been birthed into a living hope, and I want to live according to hope, and Peter says, I can tell you how to do that. In fact, I'm telling you what you ought to do in doing that. And I'm saying to you, please, Christian, set hope on grace. Set your hope there. And you say, okay, Peter, I, I, I will. Um, uh, could you fill that out for me? H how am I to, to go about setting hope on the grace will be revealed to me? By preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded. You say, okay, yes, I, I, all right, th that's what I'll do. And then you think, how am I preparing my mind? How am I being sober-minded? If I could provide just a small little thought, I would say this. By being thoughtfully self-controlled. By being thoughtfully self-controlled. You see, again, controlling our behavior, that, that is, in our ethics and our behaviors, controlling our behavior requires our having the ability to do so, that is, being mindfully sober. It, it, we can't have great action if we, if we can't have sobriety of mind. Prepare your mind for action. And, and, and do this by being sober-minded. Be thoughtfully self-controlled. One author makes this comment, quote, self-control is the war between impulsivity and doing what's right or beneficial. You've been birthed unto a living hope. But how was I birthed? By the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the gospel to you. How do I then live in a life of self-control? Being thoughtfully self-controlled, set your hope on grace. Look forward to his appearing as you live your pilgrim's journey thoughtfully with discipline and self-control. Self-control is the war between impulsivity and doing what's right or beneficial. It's the ability to control emotions impulses or behaviors to achieve a greater goal. Let me read that one last time as you think, okay, so if I'm preparing and I'm being sober-minded, in other words, if I could sum it up, I'm being thoughtfully self-controlled. What will that require of me? Self-control is the war between impulsivity and doing what's right or beneficial. It's the ability to control emotions, impulses, or behaviors to achieve a greater goal. The greater goal of the text, hope in the grace that will be revealed. You see, if we, if we lay this to conscience and mind and think on this, I think we'll understand the gravity of it. Think of social media. Uh, think of consumerism. Uh, on and on and on it goes. Think of relation, achievement and, and work, standing among peer groups, <clears throat> 
culture will drive us to put hope in a myriad of places. Its offering is a lush buffet of items and things that it's enticing us to put hope in, to put confidence in. And Peter's saying, you have to resist this. It's the vacuum cleaner just sucking you up. You you, you can't just be like, oh, it's not that much of a temptation for me. It is. It's more than you realize. We're we're, we're numbed toward the things of Christ far easier than we think. Peter's saying, you have to know this, look at this clearly, and be sober-minded in your thoughtful engagements. Otherwise, impulsivity and bad habits will destroy your hope. In conclusion, if I could just again give you a final thought to lay to conscience. As a Christian, why are you even endeavoring after preparing your mind? Why are you even endeavoring after uh, being sober-minded? Why are you endeavoring after this constant challenge to set your mind on hope because I've been born to a living hope. It's my grateful response for the new birth. The final thought is this, you see, if we are to set our hope, if we're to do this as Christians, as a church, if we are to set our hope on future grace, we must see through a godless culture of self-indulgence. This speaks to our behaviors. This speaks to our categories. We have to see through a godless culture of self-indulgence and ambition and commit ourselves, believers, commit ourselves, not to just do better, but to pray that we are wise and that we are circumspect in our behaviors we need to pray that our children will be the same. Wise, circumspect, sober-minded, thoughtfully, self-controlled. We need to pray that we would be these folks by God's enabling grace and that our children will be the same. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truly the light and lamp. It sheds the light unto the darkness. We just get lost in the darkness so, so, so simply. We're just <clears throat> naive to its troubles. We're bent on selfish indulgence because we were born selfish and we maintain that in our flesh. But by your grace, we can war against it. So please enable By your spirit, provide. You birthed us, O Lord, keep us. As our inheritance that is imperishable is kept for us, keep us in your grace. That we would desire to resist self-indulgence together as a community, as Christians, as individuals, as family. And and we 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 would transmit that to our children. That we would be your people in an age that is passing away. Those who are marked by gratitude, thoughtful self-control in our thoughts, 
our behaviors, and in our actions. Now, what would prove to be true is we have hope and grace. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.